Yesterday we began a topic trying to figure out what exactly went wrong, how was it even possible for Ashura to take place, the massacre of Karbala, what were the roots of such an incident in the Islamic calendar. There were different approaches, as I said, that one can have uh, when dissecting this uh, event of Karbala. Sometimes you look at those who were directly involved, the ones who drew the swords upon Aba Abdullah Hussain and to condemn them and be upset at them and so on. Sometimes what you can do is uh, not only look at those who were directly involved drawing their swords, but rather you look at those who were in Kufa, giving the commands and making sure Ashura takes place. People like Ubaidullah bin Ziyad. Moving a step back, you can say that, no, no, I'm going to go even further and I'm going to look at Yazid who was in Sham, who had originally asked for the bay'ah of Aba Abdullah Hussein, and all of Karbala falls on his shoulders. Those are approaches that some might have. The Shia school of thought, our scholars, our historians, what they will do is that they will take things even further back. Not only condemning all of these individuals, but going back to really figure out what actually went wrong, what led to Ashura taking place from the beginning. Because you will have the time of the Prophet, you will have the death of the Prophet, and then after that, you fast forward, Ashura is taking place. Well, there must have been some things happening in between in these 50 years that led to something like this being allowed to even taking, to take place, being possible to even take place. It's not that just a bunch of evil people will one day decide to draw their swords on the, on the grandson of the Holy Prophet the one last grandson of the Holy Prophet, the fifth of the Ashabul Kisa. It's not that it just happens overnight. There must have been grounds prepared for something like this to happen. Now sometimes willingly and sometimes unwillingly even. Yes, but at the end of the day we have to see what went wrong. Now yesterday what was discussed was based on the literature that we have, and based on the historical facts, at least in the eyes of the Shi'i scholars, what's for sure is that Bani Umayyah had very much to do with this. For sure Yazid bin Muawiyah is one of the Bani Umayyah. He is one that initially uh, commands for the uh, bay'ah of Al-Husayn So he's there, he's involved of course. But how did he, who is Bani Umayyah, how did he even come to power? That's the question. Our literature, uh, as was shared yesterday, just a little glimpse of it was shared yesterday, the literature that we have makes it clear that Banu Umayyah were not to be in power. The Holy Prophet didn't want them to be in power. We have hadiths in this regard, that the Holy Prophet had said again and again that this is not something that is to happen. That others had also of the Imams pointed this out, that Bani Umayyah are not fit to rule. Yet we see that the one who is in power when Al-Husayn is martyred 
is an individual from the, from the same Bani Umayyah. And so the question begs to be asked, how did this happen? Some mistakes were made that led to this final stage of Islamic history taking place, brothers and sisters. Some mistakes and some things were deliberate as well. And as I said yesterday, we're going to be going through these different events that took place throughout the, these 50 years till the death and martyrdom of Abba Abdullah al-Hussein. We're going to be going through them to see how they, each of them is connected to the next one. How each of them leads to the next one, which eventually all of them will lead to Karbala and Ashura taking place. What happened on Ashura taking place. The first... Uh, the first event that we need to speak about is something that we've all heard as Shia. We're all aware of the details from the Shi'i perspective especially. Uh, and that is what happened after the Holy Prophet passed away, right after he passed away. If we're going to see how rulership ended in the hands of Bani Umayyah, then we have to figure out where it was supposed to go first and from where it was taken that it ended up in the hands of Bani Umayyah. Yes, the Shi'i school of thought believes that it was supposed to end up in the hands of Ali ibn Abi Talib salam, who was of the Bani Hashim, of course. And as I said yesterday as well, this is not a matter of a tribe, one tribe versus another tribe. Yes, it is not that the Shia, the Shia believe that it has to stay in Bani Hashim because they are Bani Hashim. No. But the Holy Prophet had said, this is going to be in the hands of Ali. This is, this is something that belongs to Ali ibn Abi Talib. This is what the Shi'i school believes. Yes, so how, the better way of saying it is not even to make it about Bani Hashim. That's just something that we say out of convenience sometimes. But in reality, it's supposed to end up in the hands of Ali ibn Abi Talib that just so happens to be of the Banu Hashim. The, the only time we will mention a tribe is when we talk about the Banu Umayyah because they had issues. Yes, they, were, they became Muslim in the end by force, but it's not like the animosity and grudges will go overnight. And these are things that we'll point out, you know, and literature that we'll point out in the future as well, inshallah, about how that's not the case. Anyway, right after the Holy Prophet passes away, we all know about Saqifah to Bani Sa'idah. We've all heard of it. Whether we are Shi'i, whether we are Sunni, we've heard and we have our own conclusions that we draw from this incident. And today, what I want to do is go through some details of this, not too many, because as I said, we're all familiar with it. But look at it through this lens of how this was the first stage of the many stages that were to ensue that ended up in Khilafah and power being in the hands of Banu Umayyah and allowing for something like Ashura to take place. Yes, so we are after the history of it, of course, but more importantly, what it role it plays in this history that led up to Ashura. Saqifatu Bani Sa'idah is something that is, of course, mentioned everywhere. Yes, it is there in the books of history, it is there in the books of hadith as well. As in you'll find in Sahih al-Bukhari, you'll find a nice long um, account of this uh, event there. You will find it also in the books of, for example, Tariq al-Tabari, or the Seerah of Ibn Hisham, or Al-Yaqubi even. All of these historians have touched on this story as well. But we have a problem here, brothers and sisters. Usually you noticed, you notice that uh, with our Shia scholars or speakers, what happens is that they will pick up a 
one of these books, whichever one it is, and they will share the story that is, that is mentioned in that book. For example, let's say Tariq al-Tabari. But when this story is mentioned and the reference for it is provided, there will be others who will uh, dismiss that and say, look, we don't believe in this account of it. We don't believe in that account of it. This one was narrated by this person. This one was narrated by this historian. This was narrated by Abu Mikhnaf who kan yatashayya or something like that and so on and so forth. All right, so it's sometimes, not all the time. And uh, academically, this is the way to go, is to cite these references. But sometimes, for our people, for the people, it's a better idea, maybe, to just go and see what a sheikh, a well-established sheikh of other schools of thought, how he or she or whoever that scholar is will explain what happened in their own terms, the way that they agree, the way that they accept it. And so for that, I'm not going to mention, of course, names, but there is a very, very great uh, uh, scholar that is um, in one of the Gulf states, and he is known for um, being one of the great Sunni uh, sheikhs that you know, has, speaks about everything, really, and including history, and, and he also has um, discussions that he's had with uh, Shia scholars as well. And of course, those haven't gone too well. I mean, when you watch these on their online, when you watch them, you see that there is lots of disrespect going back and forth, unfortunately. Um, but yes, it's, uh, it's a touchy subject at the end of the day. I want to go and see what he says now about uh, As-Saqifah and what happened in Saqifah. Just so that we are familiar, so we, we just say, okay, what is your account so that we can have our notes our questions and our observations there. But once again, keeping in mind how this played a role in taking away rulership from that person which it was supposed to go to and went somewhere else. Now, wherever it went, who cares right now? It didn't go into the rightful hands according to the Shia school of thought. And as a result, when you don't put something in the right hands, it might end up in the wrong hands. That's all that matters to us at least in these lectures that we're having right now, these days. So when you ask him, okay, tell me, what account do you have in mind? Yes, about what happened in Saqifah, he'll say, it's about a 20-minute clip, actually, he explains. He says that the Prophet ﷺ, this is how he begins, he says, was sent to everyone, kafatan linnas, for everybody. Unlike other Prophets that might have been only for a certain people, for a certain group of people, for their own family, this Prophet was kafatan linnas and was sent for everyone. So, it is necessary for individuals to come after him and carry the torch of the message of Allah and Islam till the day of judgment. This is a must. You can't get away from this. So it's interesting that this is acknowledged, that there has to be someone who will follow the Holy Prophet and will carry this torch. Now, the Holy Prophet, of course, according to uh, non-Shia schools, the Holy Prophet wasn't very clear about who is to lead after but, uh, all in all, this is something that everyone understands. That this Prophet came with a universal message, and because it's a universal message, there have to be others who come after him, who carry this torch, all the way till the Day of Judgment. So, so far, there is a 100% overlap with the Shia school of thought in this regard. We all believe that, yes, there needs to be an Imam, Khalifa, whatever you want to call him, that will, will follow and will carry that torch. And so he begins the, the story. He says, After the Prophet passed, Ali 
and Fadl, uh, the cousin of Ali ibn Abi Talib, and the cousin of the Holy Prophet And some accounts even Zubair, but that's not all accounts. And the, the servant of the Holy Prophet, Shakran, they got together to wash the Prophet's body. Now here, there's a problem, he says. He says there was a problem. They didn't know how to wash, how to do ghusl of the body of the Prophet. Why? Because this is the first time that they're dealing with the body of a Prophet who's passed away. If he was a normal person, we knew how to do ghusl. But since it's a Prophet, we don't know how. Are we supposed to do ghusl the way we do with every other person? Are we supposed to keep his shirt on? Are we supposed to take his shirt off? Yes, because usually for normal people, when they pass away, that's how you do ghusl. You, you remove, you do tajreed of their clothing so that you can do ghusl on them. Are we supposed to pour the water on the clothing? What are we supposed to do? And so he says that they were confused. And there's a reason why he mentions this detail. He uses it later. Yes, he uses it later. He says that this is the reason why people were waiting outside for the ghusl of the Prophet to finish, but it wasn't finishing. It was taking some time to finish and end. So this is the reason why this detail is mentioned. Because later on when he wants to talk about how people started planning in another place for who's going to be Khalifa, yes, the reason for that was because the ghusl was taking so long. He kind of hints at that. Okay. Or else that's a detail that uh, you know, is not, might not be too important. Although I will have some questions to ask in the end. Um, some really honest questions that the Shi'i school has in, these regard, in this regard. He says, something strange happened. While everyone is waiting, something strange, mufaji'ah. Yes, a strange mufaji' event took place. Yes, this mufaji' here is ismul fa'il. Something strange happened, and that is, he says, I won't say it changed history forever. He says that. Now the Shias, they will say, no, it did change history forever. <laughs> but he says, no, I'm not going to say it changed history forever. But it was something that was a shock. He says, some of the Ansar gathered in a place called Saqifah of Bani Sa'ida. Now here, I want us to remember, brothers and sisters, because you know, when you move on in Islamic history, you slowly might think that, okay, you know, everything was taken care of. You know, everything went normally and seamlessly. Everything flowed after the Holy Prophet passed away. But no, we have to remember that it was really bumpy. And here, this scholar is beginning the whole account by saying that this was something mufajit. This is something that happened as a shock. It shocked everybody. The Ansar gathered in a place called Saqifah. Who are the Ansar? We all know. The Ansar were those uh, mu'mineen and muslimin who were living and residing in Medina. And they're the ones who helped the Muhajireen, those who migrated from Mecca when they were being persecuted. When they migrated to Medina, the, the inhabitants of Medina, the Ansar, helped them and aided them, took them in and took care of them, which is a really something very great. And so these Ansar, they gather in a place called Saqifa, all right, and they're asking each other now. They're asking each other that, uh, what do we do? after the Holy Prophet If the Prophet was alive, he was the one we would go and ask and learn from and follow. But now who are we supposed to follow? Yes, I'm saying all of this, brothers and sisters, so that you know, it becomes clear that this is something that everyone understands. There's a need for. Yes, there was a need for knowing who to follow after. Well, you should have asked the Prophet then before he passed away. This is a question that you know, we have all the time. If it was this important, and if it was going to be this confusing, why didn't the people ask the Prophet?
Now some might say, if the Prophet was to give a name, then that would cause fitna and division amongst the people. That's what the Shia is. Some might say the Shia say. But if the Sahaba were all on the same page, they were all friends, they all loved each other, then what, there should be no problem. If the Prophet mentions a name, everyone should comply, right? So this is a question here. Why don't they just ask the Prophet before he passes away? Why did they wait for him to pass away? And then all of a sudden there's confusion. And so they're, sta they're standing together or sitting together in this location referred to as Saqifatu Bani Sa'ida trying to figure out what's going to happen after the Prophet now. Right? Everyone needs an Imam to follow. This scholar who's telling this, you know, sharing this account with us and relating this account, he says, he says the reason why they were confused is because everyone knows that there is an Imam, there, you always need an Imam, a leader to follow. You can't not have a leader. And it's because of this that they are gathering and discussing. Now, they know that they are only maybe half of the Muslim Ummah. But there is a whole bunch and a whole big number of Muhajireen and Quraysh as well, who are in Medina as well. You can't be a part of the population of the Muslims and then now say, you know, we're going to choose who's going to be leading us after. You have to get their approval as well. And so they couldn't really figure out what to do. And so they said, Minna Amir wa Minhum Amir. We'll have an Amir and a leader, and they'll also have their leader, the Quraysh. Uh, I, don't want, I shouldn't say Quraysh. Quraysh was a part of the Muhajireen. Let's say the Muhajireen. That was the conclusion that they came to. Once again, I'm just quoting... This scholar that you know is giving this account, this Wahhabi scholar, he is sharing his take on the story. And of course, he's gotten it from the sources that he finds reliable. There's nothing wrong with that. So while this was happening, one of the Ansar, they say, was not happy and was a little disturbed by what's going on because decisions, big decisions, are being made without consulting a huge number of the Sahaba, of the companions of the Prophet, the Muhajireen. And these are not your normal Sahaba, these are all big figures that are, are, that are absent in this meeting. And so he goes, this Ansari individual who was disturbed by all this, he goes and runs to where the Prophet is being washed, the house of the Prophet, close to the home of the Prophet where people are standing outside and waiting. He, sent, he, he goes to Amr ibn al-Khattab and tells him, tells him what's going on. And this, of course, anyone who hears this will say, this is wrong, this is unacceptable. And so Umar ibn al-Khattab informs Abu Bakr, and these two, with, along with uh, Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah, also one of the famous companions of the Prophet, they get up and go to put an end to this fitna that's about to take place. Yes, once again, I'm quoting this scholar who is relating this account to us, this part of this story to us. So they go there, and when they're there, they ask what's going on, and then the Ansar tell them, they say, look, we're choosing a leader, and we should have a leader, minna amir wa minkum amir, both of us have a leader of our own, yes? And so here, once again, the Shia school will say, okay, right here, those Muhajireen, those three, Abu Bakr, Umar, and Abu Ubaidah, Jarrah, they should have said, no, 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 we have to wait for all of the companions to decide on something. At least put this argument forth, even if they felt that this argument is not going to be accepted. 
yes? And that they are going to make a decision right on the spot. Yeah? They should have at least presented this argument and said, look, let's wait for everyone else. Let's wait for the Prophet to be buried. This is kind of disrespectful to the Holy Prophet being buried. And then the Ansar have gathered somewhere and they're discussing a matter like this. This argument should have at least been presented. And then if they did not agree, then resorted to other means of stopping them. But no, we don't find this in any of these reports. And this Shaykh also, he doesn't say that. He says instead that, the, that Umar ibn al-Khattab said that I had prepared something to say. I was about to say it, but then Abu Bakr spoke. He spoke and he said some things that exactly what I was going to say. And he did a very good job. He praised them. He praised the Ansar. He said, Ansar, you are some of the greatest servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You've done so much for the, for the Muslim Ummah, for the Holy Prophet Yes, yes, you have all of these merits. But let me remind you that the Holy Prophet said that the Quraysh are the ones who are going to have Al-Imrah, that they are going to be leading. They are going to be the leaders and the Khulafa or Imams of this Ummah after him. So the, the, Abu Bakr reminds them of this hadith of the Holy Prophet. And so they say, according to, once again, according to this account that this scholar is mentioning, they say, okay, if that's the case, سَمِعْنَا وَأَطَعْنَا We hear you and we listen and we obey. This is right, what you're saying. Thank you for reminding us, as if. مِنَّ الْأُمَرَاءُ وَمِنْكُمْ Abu Bakr says, look, if this is the case, we are supposed to be the leaders. You will be the viziers. You will be the ones who will be helping us in leading. You will be um, our advisors. Yes? مِنَّ الْأُمَرَاءُ وَمِنْكُمْ الْوَزَرَاءُ And so this is where the people, they all rejoiced. They were happy that, okay, this is the solution. And they gave their bay'ah to Abu Bakr. He became Khalifa. They returned to Ali and Zubair. After the Prophet was buried, everyone gave their bay'ah to Abu Bakr, except Ali Zubair and Sa'ad bin Ubadah. And this is where the account <coughs> ends, brothers and sisters. So going back, this account is, is given to us by one of the scholars, yes, one of those staunch scholars um, that is, is not a big fan of the Shia school of thought, I will say. This is his version of it. Okay, so we're not going to the books for that reason that I said, yes? But when we do look at the books and we try to find exactly where this report was taken from, the most resembling of, the, of this account that the Shaykh shares is the one that you find in Sahih al-Bukhari in, that in the book uh, of, of, uh, of, the, the, of course, the, the major hadith book of the Sunni school of thought. It looks like he's getting it from that one. And the account that's mentioned there um, in that chapter of uh, what is supposed to happen to uh, the one who commits zina muhsana, Yes, what the, uh, what the punishment for that is. In that chapter, this hadith is there. Most of the hadith, which is a long one as well, um, has nothing to do with that title of the chapter, but it does come up in a sentence or two in that hadith, and that's why it seems they've put it under that chapter. Anyway, it seems that this account that he shared is coming from 
that source. Because when you look at Tariq al-Tabari, for example, and others, you'll find some details that were not in this account that was shared by this shaykh. Okay, so if we're going to take that account, for argument's sake, yes, um, there are some questions, there are some observations here that we're going to have. As Shia, um, as people who are, we, we, we are trying to be as objective as possible to figure out what's going on, and then we want to, inshallah, uh, come to a conclusion in regards to this event. The first one, the first note and question um, and observation that is there is that, okay, if they didn't know how they are supposed to do ghusl of the Holy Prophet and all of that, uh, this is very scary because this is a far fiqhi. This is a normal, you know, ruling that has to do with Islamic law. We are supposed to get our deen um, from the Sahaba if that's the case. And if that is the case, then it's sad that the Holy Prophet would not have taught the people what to do, how to do ghusl of him after his death. Now, why do I say this? It's because if something that small, something like that is missed by the Holy Prophet, then some might say, although it's small, but it's something that's supposed to happen right after him. The Holy Prophet knows that right after he passes away, this is maybe the first thing that might come up. So it's something that, although not very significant, it's not very significant maybe in the eyes of some, although this is the ghusl of the Holy Prophet, it is very significant actually. It's happening right after the Prophet. A person who knows that these will be the questions that are going to come up, at least right after their passing, has to address them. It gets worrisome that even the Sahaba that are great Sahaba, if they don't know the rule to this, and of course all of this is based not on the Shia uh, account of things, I have to repeat that again. This is based on uh, the account that was shared from the beginning of today's lecture, uh, based on that uh, scholar's account. If this is the case, that the Prophet has not addressed this, then he probably he's not going to address other things that he knows might come up after him, right after his passing. And that is the matter of leadership, who is to lead. This is not the Prophet that we've grown accustomed to knowing, brothers and sisters, that the, these kinds of details will be skipped. But that's not a very important one, brothers and sisters. Let's move on. What we want to talk about more is that this... Saqifa and what's happening in Saqifa is happening right after the Prophet has died and hasn't been buried yet. This is very worrisome as well. Why? Because yes, we all understand how important leadership is. Yes, we understand that. La Buddha Linasim in Imam. Yes, there is no way out of it. The people have to have an Imam. Yet yeah, but but we're talking about the Holy Prophet here passing away. Give it at least 10 hours, 12 hours, one day, two days, let the Prophet get buried, and then let's discuss and choose a leader for ourselves afterwards. Why? Why does this have to happen? And this uh, criticism is more aimed at the Ansar who got together. It has nothing to do with the first and second Khalifa that made their way there later. Yes, initially, based on the reports that we, you will get, if the, if the Prophet is still hasn't been buried yet. Don't you think, O oh Ansar, that you should give it, a ch give it some time? 
let the people bury the Holy Prophet and then talk about these matters. And if you feel that, no, 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 we can't wait that long, it's too dangerous, you know, we need a leader right now, at least, at least inform the others. Why does something have to happen in secret and in hiding? In a way that if, 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 if it had not leaked out, and that one Ansari had not come and informed some of the Muhajireen, then no one would have known. And before you know it, there's a leader, and people have given him bay'ah, and everyone has to follow him. Right? So this is also very worrisome. These are, as some say, these are the companions that the Holy Prophet had trained himself. These are the best of the best, right? So why is this happening? This is a very important question. And as I've said, I said yes, this yesterday as well, brothers and sisters, there will be answers that will be, will be given. And there will be answers that the Shia will give to the answers that are given. And it is a back and forth thing, whether we like it or not. But at least let us know what the questions are. Some people will find the questions more convincing. Some will find the answers more convincing. Yes, we have to discuss these matters. Especially since we're trying to look at them not just from the eyes of history. But we're trying to analyze things to figure out how is it that Ashura takes place. What mistakes have to take place first for leadership to end in the hands of Bani Umayyah, yes, so that Ashura takes place. So that Imam Hussein has no choice but to feel that the only way Islam will survive is for his blood to be spilled. The next uh, observation that we have is this, that they say that Bay'ah was taken for the first Khalifa because there was no other choice. Why? Well, if we had not taken Bay'ah for him, in that Saqifah meeting, what's, what would have happened was the people would have chose someone from themselves, the Ansar, and since they're not Quraysh, others would not give him Bay'ah. Others wouldn't give Bay'ah. And if they don't give Bay'ah, fitna is going to happen. So it's better to nip this in the bud and not let it happen. And so we, they have no choice as if. When the Ansar are the majority in that gathering, and there's only three of the Muhajireen, to somehow give bay'ah to Abu Bakr first before any bay'ah can be given to any of the Ansar. And so by doing this, at least they can say that, okay, we have somebody now. So don't worry about it. And so everyone else has to give bay'ah to him. Yeah? So this is the justification that you will hear um, in the reports. That this was the reason why. In the accounts that are given. That this was the reason. There was no choice but to do things in a hurry so that the Ansar don't get away with what they want to get away with. So now the questions that come up is this. If that is the case, brothers and sisters, then this was something that happened all of a sudden. As that same account in Bukhari says, كانت فلتتن. It happened all of a sudden. There was no choice. Yes? Alright. Why did that happen? Either because the Ansar who had gathered, these companions of Rasulullah who had gathered, they were unaware of the Holy Prophet saying that leadership is in the Quraysh. If they were unaware of it, then why is it when it was brought to their attention, they said, oh, thank you, yes, minna, minkum al-umara wa minna al-wuzara. Yeah, we, we accept that. That we can, we can be wazirs and you can be the emirs. Right? Is it that the Prophet did say it and they forgot? It doesn't seem like that would be the case because this is something very important. It's not something, it's not your everyday thing that you forget about. Yes? Alright. So then if that's the case, then 
And you can't say like they forgot. It just seems very unlikely then either the Prophet wasn't clear about what he says when he says that the Quraysh have to be the Amirs. Then this is a problem when it comes to the Prophet because the Prophet is addressing a very important issue. You cannot be unclear about things when you're talking about an issue like this. It's either that he was unclear, which is unlikely. They forgot is also unlikely. Then what is left is that no, they knew about this, yet they still went ahead with what they were doing. And this is a big problem. And this does not read with that idea that every companion necessarily is going to be good no matter what. No, they made this mistake. We're going to call it a mistake. We're not even going to say that you know it was on purpose or whatever. But this was a mistake that was made, at least this should be said. Yes, and if it is a mistake that was made, then what happens is that we can list this as one of the reasons why the, the uh, bay'ah did not take place for the person that it was supposed to take place for. Yes, why? Because the one who did take bay'ah, which was Abu Bakr, was Quraysh, true. But it was a reaction to what they were doing. It didn't happen with the consensus of the grand Sahaba of the Holy Prophet. And yes, some will say that later on the consensus came. Okay, that's fine. Let's assume that's the case. But then this next question comes. The next question that comes is this, is that if this was something that happened all of a sudden, it was reactionary, it was, it was a reaction to what the Ansar were doing, then we have one of two things to say here. Number one, then why is it that after bay'ah is taken for Abu Bakr, why don't they gather all together again and say, let us pick, after the Prophet has been buried, let us pick a Amir, and I will relinquish that bay'ah, I will, uh, I will let go of it, I don't need it. Some might say, no, once you take bay'ah, you can't let go of it. Alright, in that case, then this question really shows itself, brothers and sisters. And this is the second point that I want to make. The second point that I want to make is that if the bay'ah of Abu Bakr was faltatan, was something that happened all of a sudden, according to that account of Bukhari, then why is it that, and if people know that this was a mistake that was made, there was no choice, excuse me, there was no choice for it, then why is it that and that, you know, there's, there's, it's dangerous for, it was a dangerous thing that actually took place because in the account, actually, let me read it to you, this part of it, it says, فَلَا يَغْتَرَّنَّ يَقُولَ That uh, the second Khalifa in this hadith, he says, don't let anybody say, إِنَّمَا كَانَتْ بَيْعَةُ أَبِي بَكْرٍ فَلْتَةً وَتَمَّتْ It was something that took place all of a sudden and ended. أَلَا وَإِنَّهَا قَدْ كَانَتْ كَذَلِكَ Yes, it was like that. It did happen all of a sudden. But Allah waqa sharraha. Yes, there could have been a lot of dangers, a lot of problems and sharr that were the could have been the result of just taking bay'ah all of a sudden. Yes, but Allah is the one who protected the ummah from this sharr, from all the problems that could have arisen from this. Look, there's no one like Abu Bakr anyway. So he's saying, look, he would have been the first Khalifa anyway. Okay. He says, look, 
when you give bay'ah to somebody without discussing this matter with anyone else of the people, of the Muslimin, you are putting yourself in that danger of getting killed. The one who gave bay'ah and the one who took bay'ah. In other words, when we gave bay'ah to him in Saqifah, there was danger there. We could have lost our lives later. Because people would have been like, how dare you take bay'ah and give bay'ah without consulting the rest of the Muslimin. Now here it says Muslimin, it doesn't, it doesn't even say Sahaba. It says, مِنْ غَيْرْ عَنْ غَيْرْ مَشْوَرَةٍ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ But anyway, the point I want to make here is this. Okay, so there's danger even. It is not in the favor of the Muslimin, yes, and their wahda and unity to make decisions like these all of a sudden. But you say that we had to. Okay, let's fast forward to when the first Khalifa was passing away. When the first Khalifa was passing away, and now they have been through all those tough times, and those dangers are, are, have been put behind them, it, don't you think that it would be the right thing to do the, for the second Khalifa to be chosen now, at least? To do it with an mashwaratin min al muslimin to consult all of the Muslimin, is that what happened though? Once again we find that no. A bay'ah was, bay'ah was taken, or khilafah was given, let's say, without any consultation of the rest of the mu'mineen and muslimin again. So if it was a problem and it was a faltah in the beginning, then we have a problem because in the end also it's happening again the same way. And this is where the question of the Shia comes again. If it happened the first time, fine. Let's just say the first Khalifa had no choice. For two and something years, he was Khalifa. Fine. But now that we had time, we had things have settled, years have passed, don't you think it's better to consult the Mu'mineen and the Muslimin on who is going to succeed the first Khalifa? Yes, this is a very important question. And yes, there will be answers that might be given as well. For example, this Shaykh, when he's confronted with this question, you know what he says? Things like, no, these things might not be true. Or, you know, these things, there's a different explanation for it, etc., etc. We don't want to get into that part. As I said, we don't want to zoom in on Saqifa and see if who was right and who was wrong. What we want to get to is this, that, okay, there was a problem here. The Shia school says it's very clear to me that when people are going to the side and making decisions on their own, the Ansar made decisions on their own, and there are others who come and argue against them with certain arguments. And later they say that, look, this was a falta. This was, a, this was something that happened all of a sudden. We didn't have time to think. The Shia says, okay, well, later on you did have time to think. If, according to some, as some accounts say, that even the Ansar had told these muhajireen, these two or three that came, they had told them, like, if it's Ali, we'll give him bay'ah, if it's from the Quraysh. If these are true, then why is it that why is it that when the first Khalifa is passing away, the second one is given Khilafa? No one is really consulted. Yes, an answer that might be given is that all of the Mu'mineen and Muslimin already knew the second Khalifa is gonna be Umar ibn al-Khattab. And they knew he's the best after the first Khalifa. Well, still, for history and for the people to come, isn't it better for an announcement to be made? Yes, and for, the, for him to be proclaimed amongst the masses that yes, he is the one, instead of it seeming like it was only the first Khalifa's decision. These are questions that the Shia school has. But we want to conclude for all, from all of this. And there are more questions that I'm, I'm skipping um, uh, for in interest of time. 
What we want to conclude from all of this is that, okay, the Shia school says that this khilafa was supposed to end up in a place, in the hands of someone. It did not, because of certain circumstances. And because of those circumstances, it ended somewhere else, fine. But there was a chance to also put it back where it's supposed to after a couple years. Yes, but that didn't happen either, unfortunately. And so this first, in the Shia school of thought's eyes, at least it was a mistake. This felta was a mistake. And Khilafa did not end up where it was supposed to go. Did it end up in the hands of Bani Umayyah though? No. The enemies of Islam necessarily? No, not necessarily. We're just saying it like this for now, for argument's sake. It didn't. It didn't end up there. But it also didn't end up in where it's supposed to. When you don't put something where it's supposed to end up, it might end up somewhere where it is not supposed to end up. And so this is that first stage, that first dot that we're going to connect to future dots that will eventually lead up to the bad things that happen on Ashura, inshallah ta'ala. Assalamu ala al-Husayn wa ala Ali ibn al-Husayn wa ala awlad al-Husayn wa ala ashab al-Husayn wa assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.